Welcome to the sermon podcast of Christ Church Medicine, a community coming home to Jesus and His Church. For more information about us, visit ChristChurchMedicine.com. It was the fall of 2005, so we're coming up on, let this be, 16 years. Uh, it was my first semester at grad school here at UW in the uh, Department of Educational Psychology. So uh, right around the corner here, about a mile and a half away on Johnson Street. And at the time, it was the number one educational psychology school in the United States. And I had heard people talk about the imposter syndrome before. You know, that, that feeling like you just doubt your abilities and you're comparing yourself to everybody else who is so much smarter than you and just feeling like you're a fraud and like you're not fitting in. Well, I was swimming in imposter lake at that point. And I remember one class in particular that really sticks out to me. It was Ed Psych 921, Positive Youth Development. And nine of us were in that classroom together. And do you remember the first day of class where you would go around and introduce yourselves, give your name, and then where you went to undergrad? Well, this was that day, and people were telling where they came from, and it was Penn, and Cornell, and Harvard, MIT. And then it comes to me, and I say, Oral Roberts University. (laughs) Because they didn't go to the Sweet 16 that year. Come on, help us out a little bit. So later in that semester, everyone, every student in the class had a, a class session where we were supposed to teach the lesson for that day. And we were graded on our preparation, our presentation, how well we led the discussion that particular class period. And uh, my particular topic was religiosity and spirituality in adolescence. And during the class, I mentioned that I had served as a youth pastor while I was in seminary. And a few minutes later came the question. The professor who was an internationally renowned expert and researcher on adolescent development and peer relationships looked at me And he said, so what's a successful outcome for you? Is it only conversion to Jesus? Or is it to see students develop socially and morally and cognitively and physically? Would you ever consider it a success if a student never converted? I wasn't prepared for that. A million thoughts were racing through my mind in the moment, and of course, I I believe that it's only in Jesus that our true hope is found, that true life can be had, where we're set free from the power of sin and death, and we're brought to true life. But what would they think if I said something like that? Would I be ostracized? Would my grades suffer? And all the eyes in that room were on me. And behind those, lo- those eyes lay some of the most brilliant minds that I have ever, to this day, encountered in my life. So what did I do? I caved. I mumbled something about hoping that students would convert, but really, we were in this to help adolescents develop in their social lives, their physical bodies, their cognition. I was locked behind a door behind a door of fear, a fear of retaliation, a fear of not fitting in, a fear of not being accepted by these elite people. 
So as Father Scott mentioned, we're starting this series called Resurrection Witnesses, and that's the topic of our passage today. And, and I know that some of you, a few of you, may be really excited by that. Finally, let's talk about evangelism. In fact, let's just stop doing what we're doing right now and go right down to State Street and start telling people about Jesus. But for many, the idea of witness brings up feelings of fear or anxiety, a, a fear of being rejected, a fear of what other people might think of us, or maybe models that have been held up as models of witness that haven't seemed loving or respectful. Maybe there have been abuses that we've seen made in the name of being a witness for Jesus. Or maybe you, you know it's something that, that is important and that you should do. You're just not sure how to get started. Last Sunday, Father Scott preached about the resurrection, about the resurrection being an open door, a door that's a way out for those who are feeling trapped, a door that's a way forward for us, a way to walk through. And in some ways, today is going to pick up there and move into that idea. And the question is, how do we move beyond these locked doors for many of us and move into the open door of the resurrection? And that's where the story in our gospel reading today begins. It begins with a locked door. It begins with disciples who are afraid. And think about it. They've devoted their whole lives, the last three years, following Jesus, really believing that he was the Messiah, the one that they had been waiting for, who would rescue the people of Israel, who would deliver them, who would restore things to how God had intended, the one to bring about God's rule and reign. And sure, some, some of his teachings appeared to be a little hard to, to understand, but, but the healings, the miracles, the authority of his words, wow, they were going somewhere. Can you imagine the disorientation for them when suddenly Jesus was killed by the Jewish leaders and Roman authorities together? Could you imagine the, the wait, what moment for them? And of course, they had every reason to believe that they were going to be next. Everyone knew they were his followers. And so they're behind these locked doors, anxious about, about the big picture future, imagining what life was going to be like with Jesus restoring everything. And then also the short-term future for them as individuals, their own personal futures. Can you feel that place of anxiety, the place of fear, the place of total disorientation for them? Some of us can identify with that. And we'll start with an obvious one. For some, these locked doors are quite literal. And some of you even watching today via live stream and participating with us in worship via live stream, you've been shut in for more than a year. And there's a loneliness, there's a, an anxiety that comes with that and a wondering about the future. What will the future look like? Will there ever be a, a normal again? And if we're honest, we're, we start asking questions about our jobs and, and school and what about marriage? What about family? For some, there's a fear about the direction that our country's headed or a fear around even the direction of the church, where the church is going, wondering what's going to happen after these days. And for others, there's a fear around witness. 
we approach the reading this morning, we hear the words, we hear about Jesus sending his disciples, and then we, we, we start to have these feelings rise in us of, oh man, but what, if, what if then people don't like me, or, or what if I don't do it in the right way? And there's even an anxiety for some of us around whether we should do this at all in a culture that says you shouldn't force your, your way of thinking on someone else. And even likening evangelism to imperialism, we're, we're importing something on someone and forcing something on someone. There's such a fear of persecution or a fear of not fitting in that it's sometimes hard to take these words of Jesus in. The doors are locked. And we long for those open doors of the resurrection. But how do we get there? How does Jesus free those of us who are living behind locked doors? In the gospel reading today, we learn two things. And it's really simple, and it's really deep, and it's really good and wonderful. And these two things are first, Jesus shows, and then Jesus sends. Jesus shows, and then Jesus sends, and that order matters. And they're together, they're not separate. We don't get a showing without ascending, and we don't get ascending without first a showing. So first, Jesus shows. Go ahead and open up your Bibles if you have them to John chapter 20 in verse 19, and if you don't, the reading is in your bulletin, so you can follow along there. On the evening of that day, the first day of the week, the doors being locked where the disciples were for fear of the Jews, Jesus came and stood among them and said to them, peace be with you. Jesus comes right into that very place of fear. You might think, but but he can't come into this place. He could go into that place. He can't come into my place of fear. Yes, he can. And he did, and he does. He comes, look at all these verbs. He comes, he stands, he speaks. He's present with them. He ministers his very presence to them. And he says these words, peace be with you. And of course, it's the standard Hebrew greeting of the time. And in one sense, that's not special. But there's another really heavy, weighty, special sense in these words of Jesus that Hebrew shalom, this, the wholeness, the well-being, the things are as they should be, as they've made to be, as they've been made to be. It's what the prophets had been pointing to time after time after time throughout the generations. The restored kingdom of God realized now in the crucified and risen Son of God, the incarnate Son of God, Jesus promised it earlier in the Gospel of John in chapters 14 and 16, and now he imparts it to them. Then he shows his wounds, the first part of verse 20. When he had said this, he showed them his hands and his side. That might not seem very significant, and it might just seem like a showing, like, hey, look, it's, it's me. But in, in the Gospel of John, that word show takes on a different character. And in a sense, it's more revealing. Jesus revealed himself to them. And he's revealing himself to them as both the crucified one and the risen one. He actually died. It wasn't a pretend death. 
He was dead in a tomb. And he actually rose again. So the crucified one is the risen one. The risen one is the crucified one. We have to have both of these together. And notice the result in the second part of that verse, verse 20. Then the disciples were glad when they saw the Lord. Again, this might not seem very interesting, but that word, when they saw, that verb seeing, is not just the electrical impulses that travel from the retina through the optic nerve to the brain where we make sense of that. Greek has a word for that, and it's not used here. The word used for seeing is more of a perception or experience. It's more of an encounter. So they didn't just see the Lord with their eyes. They encountered the risen Jesus. And notice the result. Unfortunately, the word that's in our translation here is a little, a little lacking. They were glad. That seems like, that, that's like a Midwestern translation there. Somewhat some Midwestern person translated that. Like, yeah, they were glad. It, it's more than that. There's, the NIV, I think, gets it a little bit better. They were overjoyed. There's something about this that, wow, can you believe this? It's Jesus. He rose again. They were overjoyed. So what changes things for the disciples? It was a real encounter with the crucified and risen Jesus. And this is the first step in moving from behind closed doors. And we try to do this. We try to make space for this in many ways. One of them is Sunday worship, and Father Scott mentioned it already this morning, that we, we encounter the risen, the crucified and risen Jesus in word, his word read and proclaimed, and at his table we encounter the crucified and risen Jesus in our daily time in the scriptures through God's word, through prayer, big picture through the church calendar where we orient our very lives around the life of Jesus, starting in Advent, moving all the way through to what we just encountered last week, Holy Week and Easter, which is kind of the pinnacle for us. Maundy Thursday, Good Friday, the great vigil of Easter, and then worshiping together on Easter Sunday, celebrating the risen Jesus. And I know some of you had really deep encounters with him this past Holy Week. And others, maybe you feel like you missed out. And can I just speak to you for a minute before we move on? Jesus is still showing himself. If you didn't get some kind of emotional experience, we're not making this sentimental, we're not making it about emotion, Yes, we hope to have emotional encounters at times with the risen Jesus, but be assured, Jesus is not only revealing himself during Holy Week, he's still showing himself. And so uh, don't, don't stress out. If you didn't get an encounter like someone else did in that time, Jesus is still here to show himself to you. So first, Jesus comes to the place of fear and he shows himself to the disciples. As the crucified and risen one, now... He sends them. Verse 21. Jesus said to them again, Peace be with you. As the Father has sent me, even so I am sending you. The sending of the Son on behalf of the Father is a huge theme in the Gospel of John. It happens more than 40 times, which is a lot of times in a, in a writing this short. 
And it reflects the principle of, of Jewish authorization, of authorizing someone to speak and act on behalf of another person. And here it is, in essence. The one who is sent is the same as the one who sent him. The one who is sent is the same as the one who sent him. And so it's like a king in that day authorizing someone to go negotiate the price of a crop or to make a treaty, giving that person the very authority of the one who sent him to represent him fully in any kind of specific situation that he's authorized to. We have that today, right? With something even like the United States Secretary of State, who's authorized to represent the U.S. abroad in different foreign contexts to negotiate treaties, to make decisions, to serve on committees on behalf of the United States. That's the idea here of being authorized and being sent so Jesus, as the sent one, was God's representative or agent. And actually, it's way more than that. He's God in the flesh. And the, then the disciples become the agents of Jesus, witnessing to his very person and his very work. And so the mission of Jesus keeps going. It continues, and it's still effective. The disciples carrying on the very work that Jesus was doing. Not a different work, not a new work, not a separate work from him but the same work. I like how Cyril of Alexandria, uh, one of the great Eastern doctors of the church in the 400s, how he commented on this mission. He says, it, the mission is to call sinners to repentance and to minister to those who are caught up in evil, whether of body or soul. In all their dealings on this earth, they were not in any way to follow their own will, but instead the will of him who sent them. And they were also called to save the world by their teaching so far as it was possible. So he sends Jesus. Jesus sends us. And you know what's even better is how he sends us. Because that might not be good news to us. Thinking, oh, great, he sends me out and I'm supposed to figure this out on my own. But Jesus doesn't just hand over his mission to the disciples and leave them to it in their own power and say, here you go, good luck, hope it turns out well for you. In the words of B.F. Westcott, the 19th century British bishop and Bible scholar, Jesus only gives the disciples a share in the mission and with his assistance. Let's read verses 22 and 23 together. And when Jesus had said this, he breathed on them and said to them, receive the Holy Spirit. If you forgive the sins of any, they are forgiven them. If you withhold forgiveness from any, it's withheld. So he breathes on them, imparting the Holy Spirit. Now, a couple chapters earlier, in chapter 14 of John's gospel, Jesus promised the Holy Spirit, the Holy Spirit would unite them to Jesus, unite his followers to him. Father Scott's going to preach on this passage in a couple weeks, so I'm not going to say much about it. I don't want to steal any of his sermon, except for this, that Jesus, we carry out Jesus's mission in his very power because we're united to him. That's how it works. The power is his power. It's from his very life. And this helps clear up one of the obstacles for me, and I think for, for many of us, that we sometimes face in thinking about mission. Because it's not like going door to door and trying to sell somebody a vacuum cleaner that they don't want. 
It's not trying to say, I have a really environmentally friendly way to get spiders out of your yard and away from your house. Can I show you about it? Sometimes we think of mission or witness in that way as separate from the very power and life of Jesus. But no, Jesus' mission is accomplished in Jesus' power, and it's a natural outflow of the very life we live, being united to him by the Holy Spirit. And this was part of my problem in 2005 in that classroom over here in Ed Sciences. I wasn't sufficiently rooted in the life and power of Jesus. It wasn't a natural outflow of my life in my union with him. So verses 22 and 23 are a whole lot like what John had written or what was written earlier in chapter 13, verse 20. Where Jesus says this, whoever receives the one I send, he's sending the disciples, whoever receives the one I send receives me, and whoever receives me receives the one who sent me. So the disciples are being given authority to act as Jesus' agents in the course of their mission, and in doing that, they are God's very agents in that mission. And some would repent and believe, and others wouldn't just like some accepted Jesus and some rejected him. So ours isn't the pressure to have people decide for Jesus or not. Ours is just to bear witness. We're sent to bear witness. What does that mission look like for us? Several weeks ago, uh, we were down here and had a text where the gospel was a proclamation in word and deed. That's what the mission is. It's the word of Jesus. It's doing the works of Jesus, praying for the sick and those who are in bondage, seeing people set free from sin, set free from addictions, set free from the powers and principalities that are keeping them held captive and away from God. It's embodying and bringing forgiveness and reconciliation where there's brokenness, and it's telling people that there's hope. That in Jesus, we can be set free from all of these things. We can experience the very life that God intended for us, not apart from him, but by being united to him. What a glorious purpose. Wow. Out of our union with Jesus to just embody his very presence in the world, that's what, that's what this mission is. That's what witness is. Look what God, look how good God is. It's amazing. Some people will reject it. Some people will embrace it gladly. That's not ours to take care of. But who am I sent to, we might ask. <laughs> For most of us, and we're glad, God isn't calling us to go door to door and knock on doors or to wear a sandwich board on the street corner and yell at people who are going by. But it's the very people that we have been put in touch with by God on a daily basis. That's who the Lord's calling us to. And so today and next Sunday, we're going to talk about some really practical tools. And Father Scott mentioned that these are not just here at Christ Church, but around the diocese to help us move beyond a vague sense of mission and move to really practical, specific ways to implement it and get us started thinking about it. And these two tools that we're going to start with this week and next week are from Father Rick Richardson, who's connected with one of our sister churches on the west side of Chicago, and who also happens to be an evangelism professor at Wheaton College. 
And so in your bulletins today, you have one of these cards. And it says Frank on the top, not with a K like your uncle, but Frank as in the now defunct old French currency before the euro. And this is an acronym. And it's trying to get us to think of who in our lives has never encountered the good news that Jesus died and rose again and ascended to heaven and is inviting us into that life to share with him. Friends. Who are the people who we're friends with? This is for you to go home and think about and ask the Lord who fits these different five groups who you're calling me to start praying for. We're not talking about anything else yet. Who can I start praying for who, has, who has, doesn't, doesn't know Jesus? They're not living a life with him, an abundant life. Some relatives. Most of us have at least one family member who, who doesn't know the Lord. Acquaintances. People we meet at the coffee shop, at the grocery store, on the baseball field, anywhere. We, we're casual. We don't really know them. But who's an acquaintance of yours? N is for neighbor. We're Midwesterners, so we don't always know our neighbors. We spent considerable time in Virginia, and it really quickly met all of our neighbors. And we, everyone knew everyone's business. That was just the culture. But here we're very private, and so it's a challenge sometimes. And so we're going to need to do some work, some of us. A really great thing to do, you've probably heard about this, maybe from Father Matt Woodley from Resurrection in Wheaton, but a neighborhood map. Um, our 13-year-old loves maps. He, he helped us do this. It, drawing a map of our neighborhood, where the houses are, and then introducing ourselves to them, finding out what their names are. So then we could start praying for our neighbors. And last... Uh, a coworker, who do you work with? This is a, a little bit um, maybe outside of our comfort zone, but engaging them in conversation. Uh, and Father Scott next week will take us through the next step in this after we start making this list and identifying some of the people in our lives that God has intentionally put there so that we can minister the presence of Jesus to them. So this week, that's your homework. Take this home, spend time with it, write names down, and then commit to, start, commit to praying for these folks. And you'll be surprised by what starts to unfold when we start bathing these people in prayer. Even journal prayers, specific prayers for them that you can go back and reflect on what the Lord has done. Father Scott also pointed out that there was a Spanish version of this. And one of our desires as a diocese in the coming years is to be more multicultural, multi-ethnic. And so consider, are any of those on your frank list of a different culture, a different ethnic group, economic class, or religion? How might we need to expand our relationships? What might we need to do to get out into places where there are people who are different from us that we can have on our list and start engaging with the good news of God. So how does Jesus move us from behind the locked doors of isolation and fear and disorientation into the open door of resurrection life? Jesus shows himself to us. 
And then he sends us out to minister his very presence and power. We see and then we're sent. We encounter the crucified and risen one and we're embraced by him and brought into his very life. And then we just embody that life to the world, to our families, to our neighborhoods, and to our communities. In the name of the Father and the Son.